You're going to read the Bible to us. So Psalm 2 first, and then Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, so the first reading tonight comes from Psalm 2. Why do nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The second reading tonight is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we humble ourselves before you tonight, asking that you would speak to us powerfully through your word and by your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would correct us, that you would rebuke us, that you would train us, that you would change us. So speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard me quote this before. It's my favorite quote on the church. It's by a man called Charles Spurgeon. He said this. If I'd never joined a church till I found a perfect one, I should not have joined a church at all. And the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been the perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, the church is the dearest place on earth to us. 
Church is the dearest place on earth, says Charles Spurgeon. And I say that as well. The church, that's us. God's people, people in Christ gathered together to, to worship God, to praise God, to encourage one another. It really is the dearest place on earth. This is what God's church should be like. This would be the dearest place on earth. You know, when you know how much God has forgiven you, that you just willingly forgive other people. When someone hurts you, you forgive them. When someone wrongs you, you forgive them. When you realize how much God loves you, you see that person who walks the door and they are different from you. They look different. They smell different. But you love them because you're loved by God and so you love other people. We sit in this building tonight and we're all different. We've got different gifts and different personalities and different skills. But we don't use those gifts proudly. We don't use them competitively. We're just humble. We humbly get, about, get on using our gifts, not to puff ourselves up, but to serve God and to grow his kingdom. Uh, think about the words that come out of our mouth. We don't put each other down, but we only speak words that build each other up. We get rid of all bitterness, we get rid of all slander, we get rid of all rage and anger, and we speak words of kindness and we show compassion and we speak the truth in love. Wouldn't that be the dearest place on earth? Can you imagine a church where uh, we're a light for Christ and so when someone walks through that door and they don't know Christ, just by the way that we are, the way that we relate, the things that we do, the way that we speak, people say, wow, God is here. What makes these people different? Can you imagine a church like that, the the dearest place on earth, where we do exhibit love and truth and forgiveness and grace? I've just described the church that Paul describes in the letter to the Ephesians. He urges them to get rid of all bitterness and slander and, and rage and anger and to put on love. He urges them to forgive, just as in Christ God has forgiven them. He urges them to speak the truth in love. He urges them to be a light for Christ, because did you know that God's church is God's chosen vehicle to make the gospel of grace known to his world? Isn't that extraordinary? If that is God's church, if that's what God's church could be like and God's church should be like, then you and I should not be surprised when that kind of church comes under attack. If you were Satan, if you were the devil, and you wanted to make the gospel of grace and the person of Jesus look weak and ridiculous, what do you think you'd do? Uh, It's not about questioning the the historicity of Jesus or the reliability of Scripture. I've got a great idea. How about we make... The church, God's people, a place of faction and fighting and clickiness and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. And then when people walk amongst us and we claim to be Christians, they would go, oh, Jesus, he's just a joke. That would be a great idea, wouldn't it? You know, in in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, uh, Paul concludes the letter by saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual forces in the spiritual realms. And he's talking about the church, not about you individually. 
And what Paul is saying in this letter is this is what the church should be like, the dearest place on earth. But if we're going to be like that, then don't be surprised when you're under attack. You see, it's easy for us to fight, much easier than it is to forgive. It's much easier to be competitive than to be compassionate. And it's much easier to be judgmental than to love. Isn't that true? Well, friends, this is God's church. We are God's church. We are people loved by God, united in Jesus. Don't you want to be a church that exhibits grace and truth and forgiveness and love? Don't you want this to be the dearest place on earth? Is it possible to be that kind of church? Is it possible to be that dearest place on earth? And the answer is yes, of course it is. Do you remember how Paul started Ephesians in chapter 1? And he said that, that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. If you're here tonight and you're in Christ, it means that in Christ you are chosen by God. In, in Christ you're adopted by God. In Christ you are redeemed by God. In Christ you're forgiven by God. In Christ you've got the Spirit at work in you. What extraordinary blessings those are in Christ. So how are we going to use all those blessings to make sure that the church is the dearest place on earth? What would it take for this church to be that perfect kind of church? And the answer isn't programs. The answer is not put on a course on peacemaking and reconciliation and put on a course in marriage and a course in parenting and a course in this, that or the other. What's the most important step, the most important thing that you and I can do to help this church be the dearest place on earth? Any guess? What can we all do? We can pray. We can pray. And that might sound really surprising to you because for many of us we just undervalue the power of prayer and the privilege of prayer. And the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian church because it is through prayer that God grows his church and through prayer that God unites his church and, God, and through prayer that God transforms his church. It's extraordinary. Paul has told them they have every spiritual blessing in Christ and then he says, and because of that, I pray for you. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because you have all these spiritual blessings in Christ... Everything, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What an extraordinary verse. See how he describes the church in verse 15? Who, who are the church? They're people, verse 15, whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in themselves, but in Jesus they trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They believe that Jesus died in their place. They have that saving faith in Jesus. It's not just saving faith, though. It's that daily faith. It's that living faith that every day Christ is my Lord and Christ is my Savior and Christ is my provider and Christ is my protector. That kind of trust daily in the Lord Jesus. How else do they describe the church in verse 15? 
people whose faith is in Jesus and how do you know they've got faith? But it shows itself in their love for all of God's people. That's the natural flow. If you have faith in Christ, then you love each other. Do you know the, the word I find hardest in verse 15? It's the word all. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all of God's people. Now we're called to love people in the church who have hurt us and wronged us. People in the church who are so unlike us, but we're just called to love them. The word for love there in verse 15 is the agape word. It's that radical, selfless love. You know what Jesus said? A new command I give you that you you love one another. As I have loved you, you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another... And Paul's writing to this Ephesian church, and I hope he would say the same about our church. And he says, I've heard about your faith, and I've heard about your love. Well done. Now, what did he do when he hears about this church in Ephesus, their faith and their love? What did he do? Verse 16, he, he prays. He hasn't stopped giving thanks, verse 16. Day and night, morning and evening, He just thanks God for their faith and for their love. Now that is extraordinary because this church in Ephesus had caused Paul heartache and pain. They chucked him out. But you know, Paul doesn't sit down with his prayer list and when he comes to that name on the prayer list uh, that's caused him hurt and anger, he doesn't start whinging and complaining. What does he do? He, He thanks God for them. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If we can develop that heart of thankfulness for people and for God's church, even when people have wronged us, it will transform our church. Try thanking God for people day and night. And then when you see them, you just can't say that harsh word to them because you're thanking God for them. He thanks God for them, and then he prays, verse 16. And I love the fact that Paul prayed. See, he's got his theology right. Yes, God is sovereign. God chooses. God keeps. God grows. God knows. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't pray. Exactly the opposite. It drives him to prayer. Look at his prayer. It's a great prayer, verse 17. It's what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. I keep asking that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of our Lord Jesus in whom all those spiritual blessings are, the glorious Father, my glorious Dad, my Dad of goodness, my Dad of compassion, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know God better. Do you see what he prays for? He doesn't Pray for their material things like health and jobs and families, although I'm sure he did do that. What does he pray for in verse 17? That they may know God better. And first, that is the the, the deepest need of every member of every church, that that we may know God better. The thing that's going to make us, this perfect church, the dearest place on earth, it's not programs. 
It's not praying for our material things. It's actually praying that each one of us would know God better. It's a remarkable phrase. Look at the phrase at the end of verse 17. You may know God. Take out the word better. The fact that we can know God at all is remarkable. Isn't that remarkable that, that you can know your creator? That the creator has revealed himself to you personally. Because the word there for know in verse 17 is not just the, the factual knowledge. He's not just saying that you will know facts about God. He's saying that you may know God personally in that intimate, deep, personal relationship with him. Now, I know facts about David and Victoria Beckham. There are lots of facts about David and Victoria Beckham. I don't know them personally. I'd love to, but I don't. But I can know God in that way. I can know not just about God, but I can have that deep, personal relationship with God. That's extraordinary. But he doesn't just pray that they know God. What did he pray in verse 17? that they would know God better. That ongoing, deeper, more intimate, more personal, more satisfying relationship with God. That's top of his list for this church. The top of his list for our church is a, a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship with our God. So let me ask you a couple of questions. The most important question is, do you know God at all? Are you here tonight and you can say, I know God? Because Jesus died for me, I can have a personal relationship with God. I can even talk to God because of our Lord Jesus. Is that you? And if it is you, it is the one thing in life that you want more than anything else is to know God better. We all would agree that we don't know God well enough, but... What do we do about it? Do you ever pray? Do you ever ask God that you might know him better? You know, a relationship with God is like every other relationship. It's organic. You know, our, our human relationships, you know this. Either you will, you'll grow closer to each other or, or you'll drift apart. Please don't think that relationships just stay the same. They never do. Same with your relationship with God. It doesn't just stay the same. Either you, you go, grow closer to God or you drift further away from him. And that is the key for us growing as a church to be the dearest place on earth is that we're never satisfied with our knowledge of God. We don't stagnate in our relationship with God. We just want to know God better and better and better. How are we going to be less divisive and more united? The answer is we know God better. How are we going to be less bitter and more forgiving? We know God better. How are you going to be less selfish and more selfless? You know God better. That's the biggest need of every single church, that you know God better. So how do you do that? How are you going to know God better? And the obvious answer, the Sunday school answer is, read your Bibles. And that's partly true, isn't it? Of course you've got to read your Bible because the Bible is how God speaks to us. He reveals himself through his word. But it's perfectly possible to, to read your Bible morning, noon, and night and to know God factually better but not to grow in your personal relationship with him, isn't it? How are you going to know God better through his word? And the answer is you need 
spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's what Paul asked for in verse 17. I keep asking that God will give you, look at it, verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation, the Holy Spirit, that would make you wise, that would show you what God's will is, that would reveal to you God's character. And that's what you and I need more than anything else, is the Spirit of God to work in us as we read his word so we may know him better. It's a beautiful phrase in verse 18, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Do you ever think about your heart having eyes? He's saying that the center of your, your being it needs some, some revelation. It needs to be enlightened so that you may know God. And that's what you and I need to pray for. The spirit of wisdom and revelation to know God better. So we don't need more sermons. What we need is spiritual wisdom and understanding as the sermon is preached so we can know God better. We don't need more truth, do we? We've got got truth coming out of our ears. We need the Spirit to help us to apply those truths so we can know God better. It's a dangerous prayer to pray, verse 17, that you might know God better. Because if you pray that prayer, here's what happens. Next time you open your Bibles... Suddenly, these amazing truths just spring out of the pages and, and suddenly you, you, your mind is buzzing and your heart is warmed and you're actually growing closer to Christ. And when you pray that you might know God better, what God does is he, he brings a person into your life who will speak a word from God into your life to challenge you, to re- correct you, to rebuke you, to encourage you, to exhort you. Or, this is how God often works, he brings a circumstance into your life often a painful one. And and through that circumstance, he gives you the spirit of wisdom and knowledge to apply the scriptures to that circumstance so you may know God better. If you ever pray for me, it's a great prayer to pray for me that I might know God better. And I'll pray the same prayer for you. That is what's going to transform our church, that we know God better. And like a very good Anglican preacher, he has three things about God to know. Here's the first one, that you may know our hope. The hope of God's calling. Verse 18, I pray the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. Isn't that a beautiful word, hope? Hope is the opposite of despair. Hope is the opposite of uncertainty. Our hope is this this future certainty. What's our hope? Paul's told us in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that the world is heading to a day when God will bring everything under the headship of Christ. And our hope is on that last day that you and I will be there, bowing the knee to Jesus, worshipping Jesus, standing there with resurrection bodies, forgiven and redeemed. Spending all eternity with Jesus. Someone's described hope as faith standing on tiptoes. Just trying to look over to the future. Imagine the day when you're going to see Jesus face to face. And you and I need spiritual eyes to see that, don't we? Because we're bombarded 24-7 with information about this life and this world and how to be happy now. 
And we need the Spirit of God to say, it's not just about this life, we're heading for a future. I met with a man this week on Thursday. I'd never met him before. I got a phone call Thursday morning to say, could I come and meet with a man who was dying of pancreatic cancer? He was giving days to that he wanted to plan his own funeral. That's a tough visit to make. I sat with him and I talked about Jesus and after about two minutes he said, I don't want to hear anymore. I asked him what his hope was, what his future was. He said, I, I don't know. You can never be certain about anything. And I prayed and I tried to talk about Jesus. He didn't want to know. He said, I'll just take a chance. But you and I can sit here tonight and we know where we're heading. We have a certainty. We've got a future. It's called heaven. And we need spiritual eyes to keep hold of that, don't we? And the second thing to know is the riches of God's inheritance. Do you see that in verse 18? Pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope, and you may know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Do you see this, this shock there? He, he doesn't say that you may know your inheritance or our inheritance. He's not talking about our, our future. He's talking about God's inheritance. And what he's saying in verse 18 is that we may know that we, the church, God's holy people, are God's inheritance. Isn't that extraordinary? God owns the whole cosmos, but we are his treasure. We are his treasure possession. We are his inheritance. And often we need eyes to see that, don't we? Because we can feel worthless, but we're told that we're God's treasure possession. Now, what is the greatest motivation for us as a church to be forgiving and loving and kind and compassionate? It's not a list of rules and regulations. That never works. The greatest motivation is to understand that, that we, the church, are valuable to God and he loves us. And that will help us to be the people that we are. And the third thing to know comes in verse 19, that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. It's extraordinary prayer that you may know how powerful God really is. That you may know that God does have the power to keep us and God does have the power to protect us and the power to provide for us and the power to strengthen us and the power to sustain us and the power to heal us and the power to help us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you today and to us today? Because that's what Paul says in this verse. Do you see that in verse 19? The power that's available to us is the same power, the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That's extraordinary. Risen from the dead, trampling over death by death, and the same power that conquered the grave lives in us. And the same power, verse 20, that, that ascended Jesus and seated Jesus at, at God's right hand, the position of authority and rulership, is at work in us. I just love verse 21. It says that Jesus is more powerful than every power and dominion and every name that's invoked. There is nothing more powerful in this world than our Lord Jesus Christ. He is more powerful than any government. He is more powerful than any human force. He is more powerful than any demonic force. So do not fear. 
and it gets better. We see God's power at work in the church, verse 22, because God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed our Lord Jesus to be head over everything for the benefit of his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And that's such a difficult phrase, that last phrase. I think he's saying that the church is Christ's fullness. So we, the church, in some extraordinary way, we, we complement Christ because a head can't be a head without a body and a, a bridegroom can't be a bridegroom without a bride and a vine can't be a vine without a branch and shepherds can't be shepherds without sheep and we complement him. And you see that in the church. The most extraordinary thing that God unites us. And what Paul is asking here is that the Ephesians, and what I'm asking tonight is that we in this room tonight may know the uncomparably great power available to us. Now here's my observation. So often Christians, we limit God. We limit what God could do. We limit what God will do. The same power that raised Christ is available to us. We expect to see people brought to new life in Christ, don't we? We expect to see God keep people and sustain people and take them to glory. We expect to see victory over sin because the power that ascended Christ is available to us. We're not weak. We are powerful. If only we'd ask. There's a true story of a, of a school in the U.S., suffered a terrible tragedy. They had a fire in the school and over 200 students were killed in that fire. After the fire, the, the school was rebuilt and they put into the school the most advanced water sprinkling system you could imagine. It was the most advanced in the US at that time. And for the next 10 years, as new students came to visit that school, they paraded around the school and said, we have got the most advanced technological water sprinkling system available in the US. And the, church, and the school grew and grew and grew. When they came to build some new classrooms for that school, they discovered that they had the most advanced technological water sprinkling system available in the US. Except no one had bothered to connect it to the water mains. And what I'm saying to us tonight is that we have got the most powerful God imaginable who can raise dead people back to life, who rules over his whole world, who unites us in his church. But for many of us, we're just not connected. We're just not connected. We limit what God can do because we don't ask. He can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine in this church if we just asked him. So do you pray that kind of prayer for yourself and for this church? That you would know the hope. That you would know how valuable we are to God. That you would know how powerful God is and what he could do in us. And perhaps if we prayed like that for each other, and perhaps if we prayed like that for ourselves, then this church would be the dearest place on earth. Now, what is going to make us a church where we forgive each other? We love each other. We build each other up. We show kindness. We show compassion. We speak the truth in love. We're a light for the gospel in this world. What's going to make us that church? 
The answer is what? To pray. To pray what? Know God better. Here's my challenge for us. Will you pray that prayer this week every day? That you might know God better? (laughs) That we as a church might know God better? And then sit back and watch the power of God at work and to see what he does. Let me pray. I'm going to pray verses 17 and 18 for our church. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation that we might know you better. And I pray that the eyes of our hearts in this room tonight might be enlightened, that we might know the hope to which you've called us, that we might know the riches of your glorious inheritance in your church and that we might know your incomparably great power for us who believe. I ask that for Jesus' sake.